it's still just an idea of like these killer creatures that are just out to get you and oh no insert tiktok sound you know what i'm talking about no, which one? <laughs> both of us both of us just look at each other it's the oh no oh no, <laughs> no that one there's something alien out there everyone and welcome to episode 46 of plot devices we're on the road to 50 now that feels remarkable i don't know how we've gotten this far but we're doing it anyways it's a celebration day we've got you know oscars talk we've got superman quick hits we've got shazam coming yes dc has not ended their film streak and we're going to be keep talking about them among many other things that you will hopefully uh stay tuned for i am one of your hosts brandon king alongside my normal co-host noah guzman and his fantastic coca-cola hat and wonderful sun poster that none of you can see because it's still an audio only podcast noah how are you today i am feeling um i'm feeling full of hope full of dream full of aspiration i do have my world of coca-cola hat on it is rainbow themed, always prideful, always rainbow with me. I'm back from a recent vacation trip to Atlanta and I'm back feeling great. Got some good how, movies on our schedule. How was SZA and Omar Apollo? Oh my goodness. SZA, Omar, emo, man. This was an emotional. <laughs> I was like, did I spill a drink on me or is this my tears? It was so much fun being there with some friends and uh, so many new memories created there. I really do love that city. And uh, I, I have some new connections there. I have some friends who actually I've known from Phoenix who have, you know, transitioned their life out there. So who knows? Maybe this would just come in for myself, too. But until then, Phoenix based and I love my home here uh, was even happier coming back home the second time around. But yeah. How was Stevie Nicks for you? Because I know you did go and check them out. I got to go see Stevie Nicks and Billy Joel at SoFi with my mom, my best friend and his mom um, and a couple other people were kind of scattered around. Stevie was good. Um, she's pushing 75. She's obviously got the energy behind her. You can't really deny any of it. There were unfortunately some sound issues with it. Uh, this is the start of a tour that she's doing with Billy Joel. So I'm, I'm sure they're going to fix that out later. Um, Gold Dust Woman sounded freaking phenomenal. Um, Landslide was just really emotional tribute to Christine McVie that I really loved. And then Billy Joel came on for two hours and just destroyed the place. Uh, it was fantastic and super fun. I'm not even that big of a Billy Joel fan, but just being in that crowd and that energy, uh, only the good die young goes off it was just a fun experience SoFi is a really nice stadium i can't wait to see like where that tour goes and they're coming to phoenix eventually so if any of you are curious in hometown like us but by all means go check them out i also want to add on this little corner of concerts that taylor swift is actually in our city uh last night into tonight and i can't even say that i live in phoenix okay this is actually swift city that's what they're calling this place for the two days that she is starting off her concert uh i guess this is where her her tour really kicks off. And I'm yep. so surprised to hear about that. I, you know, Taylor Swift, I, I wish like the tickets just kind of like animated itself in front of me. Like I wish like Harry Potter, they just dissipated and there they were in my hands. I don't know if I would go out and like get them, but man, I think I'm like low key a Swifty in the shadows. How about you? Would you go check out the concert? Did you have tickets? I did not have tickets and I didn't even try. Oh. Um, but, but no, I, I am actually a fairly big Taylor Swift fan, especially in the past couple of albums. Like I loved folklore. I really appreciate Midnight's for what it is. Um, and this era, pun intended, seems to be really interesting for her. I was not going to try and get to this show because just again, giant stadium tours. It was hard enough getting to me for Stevie Nicks anyways. Um, but yeah, did you see any of the, uh, the traffic billboards that just had all the Taylor Swift puns around them? Absolutely. There was one that said cut off. 
don't get bad blood. Uh, stay calm or whatever it said after that. But and you, I had you need dr- to calm down. Yeah. Oh, you need to calm down. That's what it was. So as I was driving, I thought bad blood. And immediately I went to Bastille because they have an album titled like all this bad blood. And then I was like, why are they calling it that? Only to have a conversation later with my parents. And they had been talking about Swift City and Taylor Swift. And I thought, oh, like now the dots are connecting because I'm so I was so out of it and just thinking about 10 other different things. Um, But we are not a music podcast, Brandon. And yet, I am a master of transitions because you know who wasn't nominated at this year's Oscar? Taylor Swift, despite the fact that everyone was pegging her to be, haha, I'm a master of this. The 95th Oscars, they happened. We didn't do a ton of coverage. Uh, I did a live feed broadcast of all the winners uh, on my Instagram story at the Mookie 45 if you're curious. Um, and we did talk about the nominees briefly a while back. But now it is basically time to run down the 95th Oscars as was. Uh, it did indeed happen last week uh, to mostly well-received results, as evidenced by the significant ratings jump. Uh, 18.7 million viewers this year contrasted against 16.6 million last year. Uh, that does come with a small asterisk. That is still the third lowest watch Oscars since Nielsen began their tracking habits. So just take that for what you will. But it's still a win in terms of the producer's eyes. Biggest story of the night. We got to talk about this. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Our baby, our fantastic people's champion, won seven awards, the most of the night, best supporting actor and supporting actress for Kihoi Kwan and Jamie Lee Curtis, respectively, best actress for Michelle Yeoh, best editing for Paul Rogers, best directing and original screenplay for directors Daniels, and eventually taking home best picture. Uh, those Everything Everywhere wins have a couple of great records to them as well. The film is the most awarded Best Picture contender since 2008's Slumdog Millionaire, the first film to win seven or more Oscars since uh, 2013's Gravity, and the only the second sci-fi film ever to win Best Picture after 2017's Shape of Water. Uh, Michelle Yeoh notably became the first woman of color to win Best Actress since Halle Berry in 2002. Uh, the latter actually presented the award to Yeoh in a move that I thought was pretty ballsy, but I'm glad that it worked out. Um, between both Yo and Kihoi Kwan, it's actually the first year where multiple performers of Asian descent won acting Oscars. And Daniel Kwan's co-win for directing makes him only the fourth director of Asian descent to win the award. Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front followed that multi-win streak with four wins, including Best International Feature, as well as The Whale, which notably won both of its nominations, uh, Best Hair and Makeup and Best Actor for Brendan Fraser. Obviously, the only other acting one that did not go to Everything Everywhere. Uh, other significant wins include Ruth E. Carter's costuming for Black Panther Wakanda Forever, thus making her the first black woman to receive multiple Oscars. Uh, and of course, RRR's Natu Natu, the other people's champ, becoming the first song from an Indian slash South Asian film to win for best original song. Notably, before we get into our discussion, uh, absent from the wins were half of the best picture nominations. Uh, Triangle of Sadness, Tar, The Fablemans, Elvis, and The Banshees of Inisherin walked away with zero Oscars. Noah, there is a lot to break down on this, but I first want to get your thoughts on, first of all, did you watch the ceremony as a whole? And second of all, we need to talk about the, not just sweep, the mega storm of sweepage that everything everywhere actually uh, committed uh, the other night. Yes, I did tune into the 95th Academy Award Oscar show hosted by Jimmy Kimmel. Oh, okay. I'm not going to drag the discussion out of the mud about the host. We'll have that discussion for next year's roundup. But yes, a total sweep for our love, our baby, our star show, everything, everywhere, all at once. So many moving acceptance speeches that uh, I found myself crying well into the first half hour of the ceremony and only to be elated at the fact that we got a live performance of the RRR phenomenon, Natu Natu, regardless of the lyrics and or i guess 
inclusive of the lyrics and all that, I just wanted to say between the contenders for best original song, this song, not to, not to brought the choreo, right? Like who, what type of energy from the other songs? Yes. Lady Gaga's and Rihanna's are more so like ballads, but I just, I watch not to, not to, and I'm exhilarated. So still, if you are ignorant or absent to the experience of not to, not to, whether it be live on the Oscar stage or within the film RRR, it is a blessing. It is a treat. So that was uh, exceptional to see during the ceremony. And I liked, um, there are certain pairings of actors and industry professionals that presented the awards who, who I enjoyed over others. So uh, maybe we'll have a short discussion on like, you know, who did you enjoy seeing on stage together, whether it be like the, the Jungle Cruise pairing of uh, The Rock and Emily Blunt, or we can talk Puss in Boots, The Last Wish with Salma Hayek and Antonio Banderas. It was just a pleasant ceremony all around. I love that no category was left, um, you know, out of the picture. And certainly some some new additions to my watch list, specifically in the animation category, there was five pictures that I actually have been so, um, you know, absent from or just unaware of that I had to jot them down so that I can witness them later. Uh, some of them have kind of like funny titles, but others just intrigue me in the previews. You're talking about the short category, correct? The short category. Sorry. Right. The one where the winner had been the boy, the mole, the horse and the fox, I believe. Brandon here on our podcast, Fourth Wall Break, does the uh, amazing research to see what kind of records have been broken throughout this ceremony. And so I applaud him on that front. And uh, yeah, everything everywhere all at once. It, it's amazing. It feels like just a win for the people and not so much just like uh, something going to a, you know, industry veteran who has been there and who, who's working on like their 50th movie. It's like, no, we've seen the Daniels from their start with Swiss Army Man. And now for them to be uh, regarded with so much praise for this picture, it's it's so it's super um, and it's lovely. So this was a wonderful ceremony. Yeah, I should also quickly point out, um, in addition to the whale and everything everywhere is wins, that means nine wins for A24 as a studio, which pretty much means, you know, the first year, and I think in recent memory, where a non-top four studio took home the most Oscars, which is another a huge feat. You cannot undersell the wins that everything everywhere had. I mean, this was a movie that came out and did its thing and just kept growing. And we thought, that's great. It'll be, you know, our thing for film nerds and we'll preach about it, but it will never get that kind of a claim. And yet we have seen in the past year how Everything Everywhere has transcended that. It has gone to audiences who would never accept a movie about, you know, multiverse jumping and butt plugs, but that at its core is about this really dysfunctional family about the things that really make us tick in those relationships and what those could mean in other lives and whether or not we want to acknowledge those things. And again, it just, it has been such, a, I, you know, the term people's champ, I get it is overused, but like it is basically that has become a movie that has resonated with so many audiences, not just in film nerd spheres, but in Hollywood as well as evidenced by the other night. And like you say, it's not just like, oh, this was a Michelle Yeoh movie, so I have to vote for it. it you could make the argument for Jamie Lee Curtis and we'll get into that. But the rest of the movie was all on craft and love. Like you didn't need to let Daniels win. Banshee of Inishera was right there. Martin McDonough, people love Martin McDonough. You know, Best Picture has, you know, Top Gun Maverick. What happened to Top Gun Maverick? It was the best movie of the year. Everyone watched it waiting for Top Gun to sweep. Um, funny enough, I did see a GMA promo for the next day with all Top Gun theme. And my whole thought was like, God, they must have planned this like months in advance and they were banking on Top Gun to win. Um, so I'm a little sad that it only won sound, but like obviously well-earned for sound and that whole team deserves all the props for their tech awards. Um, I got to ask you though, half Best Picture uh, nominees, no awards and specifically for Banshees or Elvis. 
were you as shocked as I was? I almost want to chuckle like, huh, like, <laughs> oh, like, oh my gosh, the underdog really came in and swept, you know, is, is this, um, would you call this an, an upset? I don't think any of everything everywhere's Oscars minus supporting actress, I would vehemently disagree with. I think it absolutely deserved all six of that at one. Like, I don't think you can die. Here's the thing though. I would have still given Banshee's original screenplay. I was talking to my roommate about this. I would have given Banshee's that one and kept everything. Everywhere. I would have even kept supporting actress. Like if you had to give everything everywhere, those six and switch Banshee's to screenplay, I think that could have given support to a movie that as we know, people adore. It got nine nominations. It could have actually got in there. And similarly for Elvis, where I remember during the night going through and being like, okay, Elvis isn't winning costume. That's fine. Oh, it's not winning makeup, but I, that won't really have a voting on Oscar. And then it lost production design. And I was like, what is happening? And then All Quiet just kept steamrolling through. And I just completely, I think myself and a lot of other people underestimated the appeal that All Quiet had, not just as a movie and as, you know, this gripping war story, but also as this really huge technical marvel of, you know, huge backdrops and incredible makeup effects and all these things. Um, and it just became this thing where throughout the night, it was just proving that that those preferential ballots really do make a difference. And Elvis just caught got caught in the crossfire of it. Um, maybe I'm wrong in using this term, but I've never used it before. So I would say that all, all is quiet on the Western front was more so like the dark horse for me. I did not see it coming in and knocking out these other players. Uh, between the, the nominated, uh, best picture films who did not make it to the award stage. Yeah. Banshees of Inishurin. That one does hurt, but I know where I place my praise on that film. In no way does I think that take away from people's regard for it, um, lends itself to this idea that, you know, everybody has a seat at the table. We all we all can be in pursuit of this dream with hopes of achieving it. Uh Kihui Kwan's speech about you yes. know believing, believing his his time to be over and just his notes about how his wife supported him, how his little brother supported him. It's moving to say the least. And yeah, man, his hug with uh Harrison Ford, how could you not shed a tear? I know a lot of people were calling that out because I initially saw that was like, that's so cute and wonderful. And then people were calling that out being like yeah, in like the 20 plus years, where was he giving, you know, Kihoi Kwan gigs? And I was like, Harrison Ford's not a producer. So like, I can give him a bit of slack on that. But at the same time, it's also an award show where people like Kihoi Kwan, like Brendan Fraser, like Michelle Yeoh to a degree who have been frankly blacklisted by the industry for so long are now being welcomed rapture with rapturous applause for their work after so long. And while it feels great, there is also that undercurrent that we need to acknowledge of like, these people were blacklisted for a long time and like are only now getting the recognition because you can't turn away from them. We never actually talked about the whale on the show. Um, both awards absolutely valid to win. Brendan Fraser, his speech was wonderful. And I, I was holding myself together trying to watch it as well. And the McMahon hairstyling team, you know, that was between that and Elvis. It was a 50 50 toss up. And I'm kind of mad that I lost that on my Oscar ballot. Um, we never talked about the whale. I did not really enjoy it. Although I respect what Fraser is doing in the work. Um, I have mixed thoughts about the movie as a whole. Your thoughts very quickly on that and that movie becoming the only one aside from All Quiet and Everything Everywhere to take home multiple Oscars. My opinion is going to come from a place of uh, just bodily. Like it, I'm biased because I was not feeling my best when I went to go check out that film. I had been going through like some some body trouble specifically my digestive system. So then when I watched that film, it kind of like did not give me the best experience because we don't happen. We know what happens in the whale. He's a binge eater. And when he lashes out, he is like this. Um, it's very vicious and it's very like, um, 
you know, when you experience the movie, you see the way it is shot to show how this man is like killing himself with all of this food around him. Uh, I thought the performance was phenomenal throughout its, its run. I, you get the vibe that it's based on a play because here are your, here are your cast of characters. And surprisingly, each of them do have their own scene stealing moment, their own scene isolated away from the lead only to be brought back to him and tying itself back to this story, his final days. Um, where does he, where does his relationship go with his daughter? Sadie Sink, I also loved uh, seeing in this role because she was hard to read as this, um, you know, still developing young adult, but, you know, is not ready to completely cut off her father. I did enjoy the movie. By the time we reached its ending, I was just ready to go because, like I said, my body wasn't feeling its best. It deserves a rewatch from me, but the crew that I went with all all admired it, um, did bring some of us to tears. And so, yeah, I thought it, I thought it was powerful, but... Uh, if only I had felt better watching it, I think I would have placed it. Uh, it might have actually made itself to my top tens of the year, uh, but it does deserve a reconsideration, I think. Completely fair enough. Uh, real quickly before we move on, just some other words to consider. Uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio won Best Animated Feature. Guillermo no del surprise. Toro. Let's talk about Guillermo del Toro just for another minute. Okay. Yeah. He, he invites everyone in the audience. He says, please, you know, I, I need your help because he is here fighting. And it's not like he's fighting alone, but he is letting the industry know, like, we cannot let animation die on this, on this stage. We have to continue to celebrate it and reinvent this, this form of storytelling. And, in so many words, you know, it wasn't super emotional, but it was enough of like, I think a call to action that I hope we see more of the industry, um, partner themselves up with whether it be uh, animated projects or uh, big or small. It was just, it was such a powerful moment, I think, to see Guillermo del Toro say that on stage. Oh, very much. And like, this is a guy who, you know, again, swept with Shape of Water a couple of years ago. And I think he even looked happier here, which I think goes to show where a lot of his creative state is being. And he's continuing on with that, as we mentioned last week with the, the very giant for Netflix. Uh, also big winners. Navalny won for documentary feature. I am sad that Fire of Love didn't. All of you should check both of them out. They are great documentaries. Um, Sarah Pauly won for Women Talking. And I'm so freaking happy. Um, I loved her speech. I love that movie. All of you need to check it out. Um, Avatar Way of Water won Best Visual Effects. No surprise there. The ceremony itself, uh, we can talk about that for a brief moment. I thought Jimmy Kimmel did a fine job. Jimmy Kimmel did do a fine job. I loved the opening because, uh, I don't know, they, they did do, it was very tasteful in the sense of what he called out and what he, and what he left because they, yes, they had to include a mention of the Oscar slap from last year. Um, and I think that that was the thing that I was kind of worried about, like, oh, like, I don't know how this is going to feel. Am I going to cringe? Is he going to be bad? But for the most part, I feel like he, while he's not super memorable, he did the job. And I think that that's, that's commendable in itself. So Jimmy Kimmel, he was a good pick. I think like the Babylon call was uncalled for. I don't love that. It was partially not his fault, but like the way that they cut off the Avatar effects team. And then he tried to stay face with like that joke about TGI Fridays. Like that all felt in poor taste, but like otherwise, you know, the slap stuff was handled, I think, fairly fine. It wasn't exciting. It wasn't huge. It didn't go for a lot of gimmicks. Um, it didn't have like the candy falling from the sky or like people going over to the, you know, uh, Chinese theater like the other year. I could totally see if you were tuning in as a casual uh, watcher and going, well, where's like the big excitement about this? This is the Oscars. Like I could see that being a thing. But for me, as someone who is fully invested in the actual wins of the thing, I was like, you know what? It's not distracting. I'll take what I can get. It wasn't distracting. You sat down, you got a, you got a great award show and you got some great speeches. Moving on to our second topic for today, uh, League of Their Own Season 2. Uh, if any of you got around to the Amazon series adaptation of League of Their Own, uh, of course, based on the legendary 1992 Penny Marshall Madonna movie, we got around to it on our TV recap special that we are trying to get out to you. Again, I apologize. 
Um, but hopefully you liked it as much as we did. We were uh, pretty substantial fans of it. You've probably been wondering about a season two if you are a fan of it, and so have we, and so have the creators, and so have Amazon, frankly, because the whole report about season two this week has been very strange. To condense it all, uh, The Hollywood Reporter came out this, earlier this week saying we would be getting a second season, or half a season, to be more accurate. Uh, reportedly, co-creators Will Graham and Abby Jacobson were lobbying pretty hard to both Amazon and rights holder Sony for another go at the show. A finale movie was being considered that seems to be put on the back burner right now, but the deal is as is for a four-episode-long second season to come out sometime next year. However, Graham eventually took to Twitter himself, saying, quote, the stuff that came out today, i.e. the Hollywood Reporter article, uh, is a leak and not official, which is why we aren't saying anything. That said, he has been thinking and pushing a lot of fan campaigns over the past week, and in the same thread, asked media outlets not to diminish the show's impact to queer and POC communities. Uh, like we said, huge impact on audiences, huge uh, critical acclaim, uh, recognition by the Critics' Choice Awards, Glad Media, even the Human Rights Campaign has acknowledged the show's uh, really boundary-pushing stuff when it comes to queer and POC characters. Noah, as we mentioned, we are both fans of the show, and when we finished it, we were very... We were very interested in the possibilities that a season two could bring. It's admittedly been a minute since I watched the end of it. This is a bit of a mess. What do you make out of all of it? My first reaction is really just like, I'm down. You know, we have so much future storylines to explore with Carson, you know, having outed herself with a kiss with Greta and then being witnessed by um, her current husband. And then we can talk about the pregnancy of Clance or how that's going to be kept a secret from Max and Clance is actually meeting with Max's mother and how messy all of that can be, keeping secrets from your best friend. I don't remember exactly where the league left off of and like whether they were all set to be returning the next season, uh, season of baseball, I mean, and not season of like the show, you know what I mean? Uh, and that being said, it just, I really love the representation in this, in this TV show. It was just so, um, it was so focused on uh, women and so focused on uh, both sides of that, whether it be uh, the women of color um, or the white women who are living a completely different life, um, whether it be attached to their sport or attached to their um, relationships with their community. This show really deserves a second full season to round out its story. I mean, that and then some, right? Like, I want a second season and then a movie. <laughs> but the fact that we were just getting four episodes, they better be elong elongated. They better be, you know, a special look into the show afterward. I just... I. I wish there was more um, for Abby ja Abby Jacobson to take care of within this show. Um, but we'll just have to wait and see. Unfortunately, this isn't decisions I think that we can fight, but here we are. And at least they're, at least they're providing us a four episode um, continuation of the show to round off maybe the most important storylines. But that being said, it's a great call to hear season two is still coming. But we know how easily this could have just been a headline of, you know, season two chopped for League of Their Own, and we would have just been left in the dark. So can be grateful for that if we're looking on the bright side. We haven't talked about the Willow show yet, but that show just got chopped after a season. And I feel horrible because I know so many fans of that show who are just absolutely gutted. And that frankly makes even less sense because Lucasfilm, but whatever. Um, but on a similar note, like Amazon has been greenlighting so many shows and they're not alone in just a lot of streaming services throwing copious amounts of huge budgets at shows that are getting acclaim and are getting views, but maybe don't have the leg and firepower of something that A League of Their Own really does. And it did. Like, you know, we watched and we had a lot of fun with it. And the whole reason I found out about it really was not because of Amazon's promotion, because it wasn't very good. It was because of fans online who were praising the show for these really important characters who are also really funny and great sports action and just an all-around good story. And you're right. Season one, for all the flaws that I did have with it, 
it was a good story. And between both the angles, between between Carson and Greta's story, but also Maxine's story of her and her very distinct obstacles as a, uh, as a queer black woman, there's so much stuff to be explored there, uh, especially in just the second season. I wouldn't mind it getting the Gravity Falls treatment at all, where it's just two seasons and done, because as we've seen, that can work. Um, I think four episodes is too few. I think the movie may have been a bit tighter of a focus to really do. Like maybe it's Maxine's team against the Peaches, and that's kind of like the big overarching thing in there. I feel like a miniseries is just a bit too spread out. Um, but again, I think it goes to a larger idea of like Amazon. And Graham pointed this out on Twitter of like, yeah, Amazon has given bigger budgets to shows that do worse, high wheel of time. And, you know, it, it it's just one of those things where when you look at fan bases and it becomes hard to do when Amazon doesn't release uh, viewer statistics, it becomes this complicated thing of like, well, the only thing you do is keep talking about it. So if you're a fan out there, keep plugging on social media because the creators seem to notice and that will take notice of the bigger studios. And with that being said, we are going to move on to our quick hits portion of the show. This is the part of the show where we take one segment each, uh, around a minute, minute and a half each, because we keep pushing the boundaries here on the show, of uh, topics that may not be appropriate for a full, you know, 10-minute roundtable discussion, but we want to get to you guys anyways. Uh, Noah, if you do not mind starting off with yours, we will go over to you. All right, here I go. I am pulling information from a Deadline article uh, written by Matt Grober, and I'll tell you the title now, and I will start my quick hit in that three, a two, and a one. David Robert Mitchell, Anne Hathaway, bad robot team for Mystery Warner Bros. pick. Yes, you heard that right. Anne Hathaway is set to star in a new film from a director of, if it sounds familiar, David Robert Mitchell, who you may uh, recognize from the movie It Follows, which was that horror flick that kind of uh, personified into a monster uh, what it is like, like transmitting sexual diseases. So he is all about like the gritty filmmaker, and it was a thrilling picture. There's two details about this film that I want to share today, and, and one is that it's going to be shot in IMAX. So this is going to be a big spectacle piece with Anne Hathaway at the front. Um, for a thriller, this doesn't sound very familiar for the actor. I'm not sure where I've seen her in this genre before, but that's a thought for another day. And the second detail is I learned from a bloody disgusting article titled It Follows Filmmaker Directing Mysterious Anne Hathaway Movie with Dinosaurs. Hmm? What does that mean? So we learned from a rumor from Jeff Schneider and this is the rumor as I quote. This is the tweet as I quote. Rumor, it follows director David Robert Mitchell is making a dinosaur movie set in the 80s for Bad Robot and Warner Bros. with Oscar winner Anne Hathaway attached to star. End quote. Are you kidding me? So we not only are getting a thriller with Anne Hathaway, who has recently, I think, started to come, uh, like, I don't want to say relevant, but she's been very present in Hollywood in the past couple years. And I just am so excited to see her return to the screen in a genre that I love, possibly being attached to dinosaurs. We'll talk about those species in a moment. But that being said, uh, that's my quick hit. Anne Hathaway, It Follows director, new picture coming out. It's going to be IMAX. It's going to be big. It's going to be vicious. Brandon, over to you. Yeah, this totally isn't tied into 65. Haha, <laughs> no way. Uh, on to my quick hit in three, two, one. So I'm sure as many of you are wondering, as far as the DC film's new era was announced earlier this year by James Gunn and Peter Safran, one of the many unanswered questions that we tried answering on the show was, well, that's neat that James Gunn is going to be writing the next Superman movie, but is he going to direct it too? Because he's, he's going to be busy. He's running all of DC films. Well, as of the past week, the answer is yes. Uh, Gunn took to Twitter to confirm that he will, in fact, be directing Superman Legacy, the next Superman film coming out in 2025. 
saying he was initially skeptical, but memories of his late father, who passed in August 2019, were part of his decision to commit. Uh, here is an abridged statement from Gunn's Twitter thread, although I encourage you to read the entire thing. I lost my dad almost three years ago. He was my best friend. He didn't understand me as a kid, but I wouldn't be making this movie now without him. I was offered Superman many years ago. I initially said no. Then a bit less than a year ago, I saw a way in. In many ways, centering around his super around his heritage, how both his aristocratic Kryptonian parents and Kansas farmer parents inform who he is and the choices that he makes. I was hesitant to direct, despite uh, pestering by Peter Safran and others to commit. The long and short is that I love this script, and I'm incredibly excited as we begin this journey. Hashtag up, up, and away. Uh, Superman Legacy is scheduled for release July 11, 2025. No casting for Man of Steel has been announced. I'm excited for this. I still don't know if James Gunn is the right person to handle DC films right now, but I'm excited because of him as a director and because of the statement and because of the openness that he has as a, you know, as a DC nerd and as a creative on this. I've gone over time, and I'm going to stop. Brandon, did you also see the tweets that came out with um, Ben Affleck you know, rejecting the statements yes. of going to direct a film. Um, did those, you know, did you have any reactions to that? Or are you kind of just like, eh, just like Twitter fodder? First of all, I highly encourage you all to go read Rebecca Keegan's article of Ben Affleck. It's a really good profile piece. I found it interesting because we've been hearing that rumor basically since the Snyder Cut dropped that, oh, Affleck has been slowly getting grabbed back into the DC fold. I never really believed that. I firmly thought that he was doing Flash as a kind of coda to his character and then moving on. Obviously, I would have loved to have seen his take on, you know, Batman or another kind of street level character. I think as a director, he has a lot to give. But if he's more comfortable staying out of that lane, I have no ill will towards that. Uh, this is not a DC podcast, but hey, we've got a new Snyderverse coming DC. We didn't talk about it, but he announced something. And yeah, we heard Darkseed yeah. say something is coming, I think, mid-April. Very curious to see what we're going to be talking about mid-April. But uh, is, that's it gonna make, is it going to make us cringe, Brandon? I think the fan reaction will make us cringe. I, I am a fan of Zack Snyder, okay? Don't come for me. Hey, likewise, same here. Um, but that's wonderful news that you shared here. Uh, James Gunn not only being attached in like the, the big chair, but actually being on the ground, uh, so, quote unquote ground, which is the Hollywood studios. Uh, we're looking at what I hope to not be like the, the process of like Taika Waititi, who like came in and like dominated the new Marvel phase of being like, this is Ragnarok, and then made Jojo Rabbit, and it was like, yes, Taika. And then we saw what else he did, and we were like, oof, I don't know if this works again if you apply it just like with different characters. So James Gunn, High Hope, Superman Legacy on the on the on its way. Um, great news. And now on to our new releases for the week. We've got a review of Shazam: Fury of the Gods coming up very soon. Also in theaters 65 or 65 million years ago. It's the Adam Driver dinosaur movie, whichever you prefer. Uh, but first and foremost, only a year after last time, we are going back to Scream. And to help talk about Scream 6, Noah will be taking that. But he is not alone today. She is a dear friend of mine and a horror extraordinaire. We're glad to have her here. Leia Zweig is joining us today. Leia, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Not too bad. Uh, I'm about to toss it over to Noah and let you guys basically go off. I might jump in with a comment or two and then just tag it at the very end. Uh, but for now, Scream 6. Noah, uh, it's years afterwards. Uh, Nev Campbell is not back. There's been a lot of controversy since the fifth one. What can people expect from Scream 6? Here we are, listeners, at Scream 6, okay? This is the kind of, like, number two for our reboot ever since Scream 5 introduced our new characters of both, uh, played by Jenna Ortega and Melissa Melissa Barrera. Uh, their characters are the sisters Tara and Sam Carpenter. We know in Scream 5 they were uh, haunted by a new ghost face still in Woodsboro. Um, if you've seen it, I'm sure you love it. It was a great addition to the franchise. It's lighting a new spark for this new cast of characters that include 
include uh, returning cast members Jasmine Savoy Brown, who plays Mindy, and her twin brother is played by Mason Gooding. Uh, his name is Chad. So because I usually slip up on mentioning the production crew before I get into the story, that's where Brandon usually saves me. Let me go ahead and list the directors now. We have Matt Bedinelli Olpin and Tyler Gillett as the directors. Actually, both are returning after directing Scream for 2022. Uh, the directors also have some credited work credited work under their belts like Ready or Not, VHS. These are directors who definitely know their horror content. But let's get into the context of Scream 6. What the hell is going on? The tagline is, New City, New Rules. Sam and Tara have now relocated to New York City with their uh, the accompanied survivors of of Chad and Mindy calling themselves the core four. Um, there are some returning cast members to this story. Yes. Gail Weathers returns with Courtney Cox portraying her. And we have longtime like fan favorite character. Hayden Panettiere plays Kirby Reed. And now she is back and ready to face this new ghost face as like this kick ass FBI agent. Um, but who is this new ghost face? Why is he hunting the crew? And what is he after is the big question of this new who done it in the franchise. The story, without, you know, really just telling you what happens, is this ghost face presents himself as something new, something stronger, something almost like the John Wick of ghost faces, okay? He doesn't mind using a gun. He's going to haunt them out throughout the city. How can, how in the busiest city in America can they, you know, be stalked by this killer? This movie will show you. I'm sure there are pieces in there that I have missed, but I'm so happy now that I have a partner in uh, horse, Horrorville Horror Space in Leia. Leia, uh, what is your fami- familiarity with the Scream franchise? And go ahead and share what your favorite one is, and then you and I can start to dissect this new horror flick. I'm obviously an original. Uh, you cannot go wrong with the original. Um, just the classic, what's your favorite scary movie? You know, you can never, never go wrong with that. I am very familiar with Scream. I love horror movies. I love the kind of campiness that Scream brings to the horror genre. I feel like it's very different that you normally would see in a parody, like a scary movie parody. But Scream just does it so well, and they do it so good. The iconic line of what's your favorite scary movie, I mean, that's what the first the first film really cemented. And then as we move throughout the franchise, that's uh, maybe it took some inspiration from films like, you know, When a Stranger Calls or, you know, that that story of, you know, call is coming from inside the house. Uh, but what I've really admired about the the ghost face as a killer is because when you have familiar slashers like Jason or um, Freddy Krueger or, you know, Leatherface, that's always been placed behind it's always the identity um of one person but the ghost face killer always changes and that's what i've really admired about these films is every time you're approaching a new one you're just like damn somebody else is grabbing the mask and here they go again um i almost feel bad for our characters like gail who has now had to fight him six times um but that being said the movie's tagline new city new rules do you feel that it delivered on this promise do you feel like enough of scream six feels like a new movie compared to its predecessors I definitely think so. I appreciate the the moving to New York from Wardsboro. I I feel as if everybody has that like big city kind of fear of being trapped in a little fishbowl, like a little a little sardine compared to everybody else. But then having kind of ghost face be there, it's like you are that one person in a big city. I think they did it well. 
they made the good choice here because in Scream 5, I mean, we're talking the fifth installment in the franchise. Like, what more can you do? So they go ahead and introduce a new band of characters. They they uh, have a point in the film to really lay out the rules for each of these films. And so in the fifth one, uh, that's where our character Mindy is able to share this is a requel, right? It's the reboot sequel. So that's why we have the legacy characters coming in, except hold on, new rule is legacy characters actually can die. And unfortunately in Scream 5, spoiler alert, Brandon, we see David Arquette's Dewey get taken out, man. Gail's longtime husband, the lover, the heart of some of these Scream movies, dead, gone. So here we are now in Scream 6, and I think that they made the intelligent choice to think, Nobody wants to just see Scream 6, which is actually just Scream 2 for the five cast. We want to see something new. So it was such a great choice for them to move to New York City. Let's get out of Woodsboro, but take some of it with us. So we have Kirby returning to the cast. How do you feel that, why do you feel at first that Kirby became such a fan favorite? And are you happy with her reintroduction to the story? I was happy with Kirby returning. Um Like, funny enough, I did see the movie with my boyfriend, who's also a big Scream fan. And as soon as Kirby appeared on the screen, I hear him next to me saying, yes, Kirby. <laughs> um, I don't know. I just I think Hayden Panettiere is a great addition to the cast. Um, I feel like Scream from 2011 had such a big name, like big names in the cast. You had Emma Roberts. You did have Hayden Panettiere. Um, you had those big names for the people in 2011. So I feel like seeing them now kind of growing up. And I know Hayden Panettiere also came off of a four year acting hiatus, I believe. So I think that was also like a pretty cool like feed for herself too. Yeah, coming out the gate, let's get you right back into the franchise that adored you so much. Who I mean as as much as we love the line what's your favorite scary movie, I also will go back to YouTube and listen to Kirby's, you know, uh Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, sl- Saw, Chainsaw Massacre, like who doesn't know that monologue? I don't, but I'm going to learn it because it is one of my favorites. Um coming back as an FBI agent, she's got a gun on her hip and this type of confidence that just oozes out of a character who has out who has out Mm, she's outlasted the ghost, the ghost face that's tried to kill her. I'm sure a new one is just like, it's like nothing to her. It's another ring in her belt. So another returning, returning cast member, sorry, is Gail Weathers as the, you know, very nosy reporter, always sticking her nose where it doesn't have to be. Uh, in this movie, she actually gets a punch to the face, which I thought has been a long time coming for the type of exploits that that reporter has done in the past to her, to her friends who are also victims of ghost face that she just makes a bank makes a buck off of so quickly i actually enjoyed her inclusion here i think that we do spend a little too much time with her but um when it comes to bringing back characters she really is the she's one of the ogs like how can you not include one of them they leave neve campbell out that's a separate discussion it's you know i can only dream of her return in seven but that being said gail i think did leave her her final mark in this film i i think that they would benefit from just kind of like leaving it at where it was. But how did you like Gail's, you know, part in this film? I enjoyed Gail's part in this ter- in this movie. I I don't know. I you see her go through so much in the first at least four compared to the fifth and sixth. You see her go through so much, and especially after in five with Dewey. I just feel like this was kind of her like, I need to get back. Like this is this ghost face means business now, you know? And I, I appreciated how she's now like that mentor for like Sarah and or not Sarah, uh, Sam and Tara. Um, 
she's she's like that mentor now of like this is how you defeat Ghostface. And I think this is actually like the first movie where she gets a call from Ghostface. I was going to mention that this when she says in the film that you know you and I have never really spoke before, I thought is that true? And I call myself a fan and I I've never really realized that. Did you did did that come across to you as a surprise or were you yeah. like oh, shit this is really a moment? Yeah, that was definitely a surprise because you just think like there's been now six movies. <laughs> yes. have to talk to Ghostface at some point, but I guess not. Like, I feel like Ghostface has had such a big like hold on her life that you would think they would have to have some kind of conversation within this so many year long like span. And it's lovely that in these films, Gail talks to Ghostface as though they all are one entity, right? Or, or maybe it's the, the reverse. Ghostface treats themselves as though they are all of the ghost faces. That speaks to a larger point of the story. If you've seen the trailer, there is a shrine that is revealed to exist in the city where the current ghost face killer is actually like, he's taking tokens from all of these films. Like we said, there's been six of them now and putting them in this museum of sorts of the victims of Woodsboro and now enacting his murders, his, um, vicious killings so that it can proceed up to a final kill. So I guess that is kind of a short detail about what makes this story new and including Gail to kind of go through what the history of Ghostface attacks included was, I think just, uh, it paid respect to its character, to the franchise. Um, I, I do want to have a moment on the newcomers. And then uh, if only this was a sc- scream podcast, we could keep going and going and going, but uh, Sam and Tara um, Ortega returns. And I think that in the fifth film, we really had to spend time with uh, Tara as her character, uh, just constantly being attacked by Ghostface. I believe she's the opening kill or, you know, quote unquote kill. And then throughout the film, we see her like uh, she has to end up in a wheelchair. She has to end up with a cast on her arm. She ends up getting stabbed. It's just crazy the type of stuff that Tara goes through in that fifth film. Now being in the sixth, she's kind of on her feet. And now she's a survivor, just like Sam running about the city, trying to avoid Ghostface. Um I love the sister relationship. I like Sam's kind of creeping, you know, is she a psychopath on the, on the verge of ticking or does she have it all under control? I thought that they balanced that pretty well. I didn't feel the need to see Billy Mason once again in the reflections, but maybe you have, maybe you have differing opinions, but how did you feel about the sisters? The returning like really two leads. Yeah, I think, I think it's a fresher addition to the franchise. Um, you have from, at least up to four, you have Sydney being like the main girl, the, the final girl. So I feel like having a band of sisters who are in this together, you kind of get a new, like fresh take on it where it's like, you aren't alone in this as the whole time. It's just been, Oh, it's just been Sydney. It's been Sydney. It's been Sydney. And then you have Gail being like, yeah, this happens, you know, but now you have two sisters and they're not alone. They have, obviously they have a group of friends. Now they have the, the core four. And I just feel like now it's more so it's geared towards like a sense of community because there's just been so many ghost faces that at this point, like, and they said it in the movie, like, we are a family, like, we are a messed up family for this very reason. I like the way that the franchise is going, in my opinion. So for one, I want to ask you if the mystery of it all felt uh, entertaining as an audience member, and then go ahead and let me know what your favorite ghost face attack was without too many spoilers so that our listeners can go out there and still enjoy it. Um, and then whether you recommend this film, I, although I feel strongly that you already do, um, and then we'll kind of wrap our final comments before we uh, move on to the next show. Okay, okay. Um, 
Sorry, can you repeat the first part of the question? <laughs> yeah, no, it's like an ABC part question, right? So first one is uh, the mystery of it all. How did you enjoy that as an audience member? Did it feel as though you were on the right track? Did it leave enough breadcrumbs? Did it did it give you the killer right away? How did you go about, you know, knocking this like clue sheet out? I I definitely enjoyed the mystery of it. I will say I did kind of catch on onto one of the ghost faces. I don't know oh, if I should. There's two. Just kidding. There's always been two, except for one of the movies. Duh. You know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> I did catch on to to one. Not to say that the the other reveal okay, um, yeah. um, caught me off guard. I did kind of think maybe it could be so and so. I thought it was a completely different person um, that was an accom- like an accompaniment, but. Then I realized, oh, yeah, that's the point of the movie. It's supposed to make you think it's this person. But in reality, it's not. I felt completely bamboozled. I think that I I thought I had been on the right track, so confident as a horror movie watcher going, oh, I know who it is. How dare they? How dare they do this to me? Only to go, ooh, ah, I was wrong. It's okay. I'll keep watching. I love it. I'm going to stand and applaud. This movie's a big wreck for me. Um, If you haven't checked it out yet, I highly recommend you go check out Scream 6 in theaters. If you can be surrounded by an audience member who is just going to give you all the oohs, the ahs, the ah, then that's going to play to its benefit. I do also just a quick question. I'm back from Purgatory Land, by the way. Um, given that you are both fans of the entirety of the franchise, you know, in all of its ups and downs, I'm not going to ask you in terms of pure legacy in terms of either cast, because obviously, you know, Cox, Campbell and uh, Arquette have had such a legacy behind them. But I'm wondering, two films in, do you feel that the characters, uh, you know, Ortega, Los um, Barrera, that whole cast, do you feel like they are given ample attention as the original cast did from their first two outings? I think so. I know we're only two films in into this new, I guess, like realm of people. Um, I feel like they are. I feel like they could go four films as well um, within their whole kind of legacy. Um, I don't know if I would go so far as to say that they are legacy characters, but I feel like they are a nice addition. I you can never go wrong with like, like you know, Gail, Sydney, Dewey. Like I feel like those are just the classics, but I feel like this is a new generation and like some kid who's maybe like 12 or 13 is going to see scream and be like, man, I like these characters and then go back and be like, Oh, you know, there's a whole nother like franchise. I feel like parents are kind of raising their kids now, kind of like they grew up with the first four films. I feel like now these kids are going to become horror fans of the next four. Hey, I'm there with you. If I started on Scream 5 and I saw Ortega and Barrera's performances, it would only encourage me to go back and be like, well, who is Gail and who is Sydney? Like, what's what? Why are they the originals? Um, Even our beloved uh, the cop in the fifth movie who got gutted. um, And then I would go back only to be rewarded with the with the joy, with the um, you know how the original screams are. They're just beautiful. Um, That being said. I think that these characters, while they are so much fun and I love having them all on my screen, I'm sorry. Scream 7, kill one of the sisters. That's the rule. The rule is actually one of them has to drop as the opening kill. That's my bold prediction. That's how we are going moving forward. Oops, I guess that's a slight spoiler for the movie. But you have no idea if I'm telling the truth unless you go check it out. That's my answer, Brandon. Fair enough. Uh, getting to ratings. Uh, no out of 10. Leia, you are more than welcome to give a rating out of 10 if you so Dude, decide. I'm so upset with you. You know I avoided the ratings question. I'm trying to break from the ratings, but that being said, Far, this is, I'm not. This is a 
uh, a slice from top right to bottom left, a slice from top left to bottom right, a big OX, meaning you are making it to Hollywood. You will be the next American Idol. Um, do with that rating what you'd like. This is like a 10. It's really good. It's great. I love Scream. Is that a truthful 10? You'll never know. Over to you, Leah. I'd give it a 9.5 out of 10. I feel like I feel like they have just like that little bit of room to go, but I, I do appreciate it. I appreciate the, the little trickles in from the previous movies and the whole cinema kind of little shrine. I'm sorry to be absurd, but Brandon, I promise you, I will continue to do so. Okay, we are going to break from it and we're going to become popcorn kernels out of 10. We're going to figure out something. Okay, plot device branded. Expect that soon. Fourth ball break. We have a whole board tracking all of our ratings and favorite moments. And with that said, I know you it, want to get rid of it, but the yeah, whole point it, of having it, that is so we can track it. It breaks the formula. I know. We're, we're going to have a, a post-show discussion about this. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how much um, blood is shed. And Scream is playing in theaters right now. It will likely be on Paramount Plus sometime in the next couple of months. We are going to move on now to 65. Uh, this is a strange little movie. Universal paid almost $100 million for it. Big star Adam Driver. And it apparently didn't get any press screenings until about 12 hours before release or something like that, which is never a great sign. But, you know, the trailer seemed intriguing. It seemed to be kind of this piece of dinosaur sci-fi fiction type thing. Uh, Noah and I both saw it. We both have our thoughts. Noah, can you very briefly encapsulate what this movie is? No, let's move on. So our okay. next film that we Anyways. Be- <laughs> so this movie, for one, just wants you to ask questions. This movie wants you to ask so many questions that it uh, may or may not give you answers to. So 65, it doesn't even know what its title is. We can look at multiple posters for promotions of this film and see 65 million years ago. And then we see a trailer and it says 65 million years ago. But the movie is titled 65. Where's the million years ago? Is this million years ago? What, what are we talking about? 65 what? Is this 47 Ronin? What is this? Is this um, another insert number joke? Huh? It's it's not 10,000 BC because that actually knew to say BC. They knew. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glitching, Brandon. There's not another joke. Okay, let's keep it moving. So 65 starring Adam Driver. He plays this astronaut of another world or a future world. You know, yeah, again, sorry, we're, we're, we're going to clarify what this movie sets up. If you don't want to know anything from the trailers, we kind of have to for the sake of talking about the movie. Absolutely. I'll tell you what movie the trailer wants you to think it is. The trailer wants you to think that Adam Driver is this sort of interstellar astronaut who has to go on a space mission where he must abandon his family and life back in present day only to be, you know, jettisoned out into space in his ship Crash land, no survivors aboard except for one young girl. And then he is tasked with becoming her guardian, tasked with protecting himself and leading them both into a safe route to escape. Only thing is, he didn't land on another planet. He landed on Earth 65 million years ago. How does that work? Well, if you've ever heard of a wormhole, you just, it's easy to understand a wormhole. You just lay a piece of paper out in front of you and you just lift it up and fold it in half. And then you take a pencil and you poke through the paper and through both spaces, we create a slip in time and space. At least that's what Interstellar wants you to believe. This movie provides you no such analogy, no such demonstration, no such explanation. That's what the trailer of the movie wants you to believe. The movie starts off with Adam Driver and his beloved. I only see five credited actors on IMDb. Is it Nika King? Yeah, I think it's Nika King who plays his wife and then Chloe Coleman who plays his daughter. Chloe Coleman plays his daughter. You may know the young actor from uh, such HBO wonders as Big Little Lies. Oh, 
so great. Uh, but that being said, he must abandon his family and go on this mission. And upon crash landing, he does realize that there is another survivor, a young girl named Koa, played by Ariana Greenblatt. And then... um through the course of events, there are dinosaurs on this planet and there is a meteor hurtling itself towards this planet and they've got to get off the planet. Pretty much they are there during an extinction level event. And I mean, we all know how that ended up for the dinosaurs. So what else did this movie include? Um, a rifle that never runs out of ammo, intense misuse of the smallest, strongest grenades. Um, it thinks this movie is the descent for a little bit. It thinks this movie is honestly Jurassic Logan? World, but it thinks this movie is Logan. Thank you, Brandon. Um, it thinks this movie is everything and everything, everything everywhere, all at once is what this movie thinks it is. All um, nowhere. Brandon, I'm going to reveal the truth. I'm peeling the bandaid off. Adam Driver as Mills, completely random name, completely random, like soldier type grunt, does not leave earth and go through a wormhole to be spit back up 65 million years ago. Mills is from another planet far, far away a long time ago as well. And we see that when he travels on this space mission and ends up on this strange planet with dinosaurs, um, cue the reveal music, whatever that sounds like. Oh, sorry. He, actually, dun, dun. he actually lands on earth and no, this isn't planet of the apes where he finds the statue of Liberty's foot and realize that he's actually traveled into the future slash past. It's actually just modern time for them, but he has landed into an alien planet that actually is still going through its early stages of what would become, um, a planet that has human life. But now it's the era of dinosaurs. The, the lizards are ruling this planet and they're about to be wiped out. So it just so happens that he landed. If he would have landed like, you know, a, a day or a week later, that it would have been uninhabitable. But it just so happens, coincidentally, he's landed on this planet while the meteor that has wiped out the dinosaurs is hurtling itself towards Earth. And the two of them traverse across a very random distance to get to an escape pod. Um, and then they do the damn thing. And I'm not going to tell you what damn thing happens because that's what this podcast is for. Brandon, how did you feel watching this movie? What about it is original? What about it is exciting? What about it is, uh, I don't know. You go. Well, like you, I also thought it was just going to be, Oh, planet of the apes with space dinos, right? That's pretty simple. Uh, we should quickly mention, uh, this is Sam Raimi behind this. Like he put his money and production credit behind this. Oh. Um, and it's also directed by, uh, Scott Beck and Brian Woods, who are the guys who wrote A Quiet Place. This has been pushed back a lot. I think if I got my notes correctly, it's between like five or six delays from this. Uh, they wrapped this in early 2021 and now it's finally coming out. Um, this could have worked. This could have worked, Noah. And the thing about it is that I think there are not a lot, but there are some pieces in there where you could have found something compelling in there. Like, yes, it's a lone wolf and cub story that we've seen a, gil a gajillion and five times. But Adam Driver is capable here. He is giving an effort. He is buying into the intensity for whatever it is giving him. Uh, I think Ariana Greenblatt, who I know I've seen in something else, I just cannot put my finger on it uh, at the moment, but she's trying. She has to do the whole movie in a made up non-English language and really just kind of communicate in the most bare bones essentials. And that does lend a lot of physicality to the roles. I have to give them a bit of credit for that. I also will say it looks pretty good. There's a couple of times where some of the dinosaurs look a bit raggedy, but for the most part, I think like the world of, you know, the ancient forest they set up look great. Like the whole breaking off of the comet that you see throughout the movie looks great. Like the lighting I think looks pretty good. A lot of it looks good and uh, drives you into the world. Problem is I didn't care about the work. And I didn't care about the setup and like the whole thing of 
you know, again, sorry to spoil this for whoever cares, but like the thing of, oh, it's actually aliens who come here and then later they get stranded on here. And the way the movie kind of ends makes it speculate, like, are these our ancient alien origins kind of thing? It just dives into like conspiratorial nonsense. But that is so sidelined by like a story that is just boring, that just tries to go for an hour and a half and credit to itself. I think it's literally, uh, yeah, it's just over an hour and a half. Like it's not, it doesn't drag that long. But the pieces just aren't that interesting for me to fully commit to a movie that is trying so hard to be this go, go, go action extravaganza. And then we learn throughout the film's proceedings that, you know, there's projection memory files that add, that Mills can, you know, watch and witness. And then the young girl become a plot device because, of course, they do. Which, of course, like his daughter got sick and was angry with him for being gone for so long. And then his daughter sadly passes away and now we realize that oh this guy is kind of like the guy that's on our uh, most watched hbo series what he lost a daughter and now he's playing guardian why does this sound familiar i want to move on to another point that uh it's kind of more me thinking about the movie as 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 a formula right so we have these uh the inclusion of dinosaurs which we actually don't see make it to like the big picture screen outside of the jurassic movies and although audiences love jurassic park i mean i'm a big fan of the third i wouldn't no i think the it goes original for me and then the third i'm not including the world at all even though i i'm confident they wouldn't even make that list but that being said, we've yet to see any films borrow that idea of dinosaurs amongst humans and really launch themselves with it, uh, whether it be like an economic success at the box office or even just audience retention. Just people do not care about these dinosaur movies. People have not been made to care about these dinosaur movies outside of the Jurassic Park franchise. And I think that that's so unfortunate. You know, how do we keep swinging? How do these directors and writers keep swinging and missing when it comes to these, um, these creatures? Uh, I can make relative comments to or a relative argument to zombies, which was like Romero's baby. And it was so successful that when we saw it regurgitated time and time again, uh, whether it be a remake of Dawn of the Dead, whether it be World War Z, um, whether it be Train to Busan, you know, any movie that just places zombies within its world building and then takes off and goes with it. Audiences love that. Me, I eat that shit up i love zombie movies why do we not have the same type of retention for dinosaurs i don't know but that is one argument i wanted to just um you know include throughout our discussion of 65 it it did not work here and that's the thing is that they use a lot of dinosaur obviously you're gonna see a t-rex you're gonna see a pterodactyl fine but they use a lot of dinosaur models and a lot of dinosaur species that are like kind of like lesser known like you see them in the film and they look alien it's supposed to kind of enhance that idea of like this is an alien world like you know as much as we as much as like the move establishes like these are not earthlings like they are on an alien world so you have to rethink your context for that aha problem is they're also portrayed with such a lack of anything resembling humanity or emotions or they're all just like driven killers and it's a thing of like everything on earth wants to kill you 65 million years ago and you have to get off and it becomes this thing of i understand the intent behind it of making this completely foreign environment where you have to get out no matter what and the stakes are obviously there but there was that idea with romero taking the original you know jamaican bahamian mythology of zombies and kind of contextualizing them in a modern setting the idea of the masses rising up and like what that represents for the people in power kind of thing and with jurassic park it becomes a similar thing of like these are still living beings and it's still the idea of like you have to treat them as such with 65 it's just creepy monsters there is one particular scene towards the end that is kind of cool but like regardless 
it's still just an idea of like these killer creatures that are just out to get you and oh no insert tiktok sound which one you know what i'm talking about no, which one? <laughs> both, of us, both of us just look at each other it's the oh no oh no, <laughs> no that one please do brandon um i don't have much else to say i want to give a bit more praise i like the cave sequence quite a bit wait uh, okay i'll okay you continue with that and then i do want to bring up something I like the cave sequence because it's the one time where we get to see our characters at their most hopeless. There's a stupid trope of like the liar revealed thing between Driver and Greenblatt's characters, which it sucks. But because they can communicate, it's that thing of she is so optimistic and so driven to get to this goal. And he is so basically done by that point. He's lost any will to continue on. And beyond like the lighting effects, there's a whole like brief fight that happens between them. There's like, there's kind of like weird reflection thing where. Um, they're kind of painting heat signatures between a fight between Driver and one of the dinosaurs. It's kind of neat. But that's the one time in the movie where I was completely sitting up going, oh, this is actually kind of neat instead of just walking around a mountain trying to avoid a meteor. And I just have to give it some praise for that. Good call out on that shot. That was a, an interesting shot with whatever kind of tech that they wanted us to see and having that be the lens for how this fight happened. Um, but, like, but also getting to that point of like, how is it not destroyed? How is it not destroyed? How... How does his rifle never run out of ammo? And also, you mentioned earlier about how, oh, is this going to lend itself to a origin story for a human DNA on planet Earth? And that doesn't happen. Like, even I thought, oh, if this, if they're here 65 million years ago and we don't see anybody who looks like a human, oh, I wonder if like somehow, some way there's like DNA that ends up getting caught somewhere. And is she the first lady of humanity and all these other things that just don't happen. And I'm like, well, then why are they on earth? Like, honestly, I think it's implied to be the corpses because of the other survivors. Like, oh, they sink into the ground and their DNA goes through the life cycle. And it becomes this weird thing. Fungus, everything. Um, I think about how, do you think this movie could have just been okay if it wasn't on, if it wasn't on earth and they just went to an alien planet and got trapped? I mean, it's another movie, but it's the same movie because this movie doesn't really matter that it's on Earth. I'm sorry. It is a slightly better movie because all the prehistoric stuff is a freaking gimmick. It's a gimmick in the dinosaurs. It doesn't utilize itself to its full potential. And the meteor thing is just this cheap ticking time bomb thing of like, well, I guess that you're like you like you said earlier, they just conveniently land the the week or couple of days span that this happens. Uh-oh. And again, it, it provides for this cheap sense of entertainment that Again, for some people it might work. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are really liking this, but yeah, I think we're on the same page. There's not enough to connect us to whatever kind of enrapturing sense of go, go, go actioneering spectacle this is trying to go for. For me, if we can go ahead and move on to ratings, I think that this is going to be a solid, ooh, oh my gosh. You mentioned in our text messages earlier that um, I sent Brandon a gif of a dumpster fire, and I think a dumpster fire equates itself to a solid 2.5. This is a 2.5 out of 10 for me. And I commented on that saying, joke's on you, the dumpster fire has a concept of joy, which this movie doesn't have a sense of. Um, I'm going to go slightly higher than you. I'm going to go three. It doesn't overstay its welcome. Driver and Greenblatt are giving commitments. There are some neat visual touches there. I have to give it some praise for that. And again, from the writers of A Quiet Place, like you can tell those threads are kind of sunken in there that can just be pulled out by someone better in this. And I get why Ray- why someone like Sam Raimi put his money behind this, because again, there is like, that core gimmicky B-movie concept to it that I think some audiences will really eat up. But again, it is just that. It's a gimmick on top of underdeveloped characters, underdeveloped world, underdeveloped stakes, frankly. And it's just a movie that left me feeling and. And I think that's the worst thing that a big actioneering movie can do like this. It is playing in theaters right now if you want to see it. Uh, It is universal, so it'll probably be on Peacock 
fairly soon. You know, if you catch it on a plane or you catch it at home, go nuts. That's going to wrap our discussion of 65. You heard our comments. You heard our rating. Uh, go ahead and traverse the land ahead at your own risk. Moving on now to our superhero release of the week. We are talking Shazam! Fury of the Gods. So happy to be back with the, uh, I wish I knew their last name family, but we've got, uh, do you, do you know the last name? Sa- the Batsons. The Batsons. Why was I going to say Salazar? We're going back into the Batson family. Now all of them really have the power uh, endowed by the wizard to Billy, who has then shared it with his family. We have um, some new villains who are taking the screen in Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu. I just cannot wait to talk about their, uh, their villainy that goes on in the film. Uh, we're going to have a good time. So I'm going to toss it over to you, Brandon. Go ahead and to provide our listeners our synopsis. And then you and I are going to get right into Shazam. So Shazam! Fury of the Gods, uh, we're back in the DCU just shortly after uh, Black Adam was promised to reinvigorate everything. And if you heard from our review, it didn't really do that. Uh, now we're back to Shazam! proper. Uh, David F. Sandberg is back in the director's chair from the first movie, as are Zachary Levi, Asher Angel as the titular Billy Batson, as well as Shazam! Alter Ego. Uh, Jeff Dylan Glazer is back. Uh, you know, Cooper Andrews, Megan Good. The whole cast is really back as the Shazam! family. We pick up about two years after the events of the first film. Billy, once again played by Asher Angel, slash his superhero grown-up alter ego Shazam, played by Zachary Levi. In case you just need a refresher from the first movie, uh, Kid says Shazam gets the power of the Greek gods. In the end of the first movie, he spreads his powers amongst his uh, foster siblings. Uh, very large ensemble cast. I will not be going into all of them because there's a lot of them. Uh, you just need to know uh, Jack Dylan Glazer also back as adoptive foster brother Freddy. Adam Brody his, his alter ego. You also have uh, Eugene, you have uh, Pedro, you have Darla, and you have Mary. Uh, Mary is interesting in this because she's being played by Grace Curry in both her normal Mary form as well as her super form. It's kind of interesting. Anyways, again, we pick up two years afterwards. They have been dubbed the Philadelphia fiasco by the press, which uh, no one seems to take seriously. They haven't figured out their superhero names uh, as of yet. And then a group of demigods show up known as the Daughters of Atlas. We have uh, Helen Mirren as Hespera. We have Lucy Liu as well as Calypso. Uh, and we have a third one who I won't say just yet. Um, I'm sure we'll get into it. I, I don't consider it a spoiler, but I'm sure we'll get into it. But needless to say, they have been attracted to Billy and his powers. They believe that he is wrongfully siphoned off the powers of their deceased father, Atlas, uh, along with a bunch of other Greek gods. And their whole goal is to restore the realm of the gods to its former glory with this magic apple that Billy may happen to have, that the wizard Shazam, played by Jaman Hansu, who may or may not be completely dead, knows something about. And uh, it's about that, but also about Billy coming to terms with his own family once again. He's about to turn 18. He's going to age out of the foster system. And he's worried, essentially, that this thing that he has built for himself is about to leave himself behind. What did you like or dislike, really, about the gimmick of the first one? And does Fury of the Gods, which has been getting some mixed reviews so far, uh, did it live up to what you had hoped? I really enjoyed the first one. I thought that the contrast of like the young boy entering the foster system or continuing his time in the foster system, like uh, discovering family and opening himself up to more and more of those around him uh, was really a sweet tale to tell alongside acquiring this power from the wizard and being able to be a complete goof when it comes to, you know, what powers do I have? And, and what, what does this mean for me? Am I a hero? Like I'm still only a kid and uh, asking those questions and then personifying them was just incredible to see from Zachary Levi. And then we move on to the second film, Fury of the Gods, understanding that now his whole family have been endowed with the powers of the wizard and I was excited for like a family kind of uh 
superhero punch brawl with Lucy Liu and Helen Mirren on the other end. And then Rachel Zegler stepping in after enjoying her from West Side Story uh, in this kind of mysterious role. Who is she? Uh, the movie reveals that soon enough. Even looking at the promotional art, you get the vibe of where her character lies. Going into Fury of the Gods, I was ready for some big action. I was ready for some more uh, just bats and family madness and the hilarity that comes with a, with a performance again from Zachary Levi. Did all those things happen? Just impressions coming off of it from today. As a follow-up piece to the first Shazam, this doesn't really feel like the same movie. It's absolutely a, a part two to really any superhero movie. It doesn't feel particular in case to Shazam's story or to really Billy Batson as a character. I'd like to hear your impression as well from the first film and then entering this movie. Uh, were your expectations kind of held up or if they kind of went out the window? The only reason my expectations were really held up is because of, you know, the shuffling that DC has been doing over the last number of years, because so much has happened since that first Shazam dropped in 2019, which, by the way, I adore. I genuinely love that first Shazam movie so much. And I think part of the reason, one, because I've always loved the Shazam slash Captain Marvel character. I loved him in the Just League stuff. I got the chance to, you know, read a lot of the original comics at a friend's house when I was really younger. And that character, just by its pure basis of, you know, it's a kid by essence, using his words to become his biggest, strongest self. I always found that meta text really uh, empowering. That idea of Billy as someone who has seen the world basically turn against him. He gets this power. What is he, uh, what is he tasked then doing with it? And then going up against Mark Strong's uh, Dr. Savannah in that first movie. And now we have the demigods who provide this really interesting foil of, I won't say exactly how, but Billy having to contend with the consequences of those choices in the first movie, whether good or bad. And I think, I think that's really interesting for someone who's just coming at the age of an adult. Going to your point, I think that's the biggest negative I can lay against the movie. And I should say, I like this movie quite a bit. Just getting that out of the way, I like this movie quite a bit. Um, it's not the first movie. And I think the reason why it didn't click with me as much as the first movie is that Billy winds up being a bit, even though he's the central figure of the movie where all of the big action narrative heft comes into play, emotionally, he's not really the center of this. You know, Jack Dylan Glazer is very much the center. Rachel Zegler is very much the center. Um, you could argue that Jaimon Hansu's character is much more of a center. And I feel like Billy is given a lot of things in the first 20 minutes to kind of set up and explore. And the movie doesn't really dive into those nearly, I think, as poignantly as the first one. A lot of that emotional grip goes out the window. And while I can't say it makes the movie bad by any means, it is disappointing. Our villains that we are introduced to in Fury of the Gods are none other than, yes, the demigods, the daughters of Atlas, which by itself is just a cool ass label or like group. You know, it's an, it's a band on, on the forefront. Um, I, I was going to say the whole time I was thinking of the prog rock supergroup Sons of Apollo, but that's a whole niche thing. Hey, you know more about that than me, but that sounds cool. Uh, Calypso, Hespera and the third sister, Anthea. I think that... uh Witnessing the the intro sequence in the museum, I it felt nostalgic. I think it just reminded me of like maybe some older superhero movies or action adventures where uh yes, they go in and they find the relic that they've been uh they've been searching after to re to reclaim their true potential for their power. And so the three of them have distinct abilities. Hespera um, has control over the elements. Calypso is uh, mentioned to be in control of chaos. And then Anthea can control the axes, like axes, the power of axes, which I'm like, that sounds, that sounds so cool. Like I I've never heard of this as a superhuman ability. And to see that happen on screen, then I understood, oh, like this is, this is her power. And that's how they um, realize it. And I don't know. I think the movie did convince me that that was a pretty cool, unique ability. Uh, what did you think about? Oh, sorry. 
Oh, no, I was I was going to add to that and say, like, with Lucy Liu's character, they kind of set up early on of her, you know, basically like in the Loki in the first Avengers movie, we're taking over a Hawkeye kind of thing. And you're like, oh, she's going to make like an army and there's going to be like an army of. No, they actually don't go that route. And I was kind of happy they avoided that trope. Yeah, she does the same thing as Loki. And it, I even saw like Scarlet Witch in there, right? Like the short whispers enchantress that can cause madness. And then they spread and it almost infects the, the other museum visitors. And yeah, like you said, I was ready for, okay, so it looks like by, um, by the third act of this film, it's going to be a whole army of these followers. Got it. Okay. That's who Shazam's going to, that's who the Shazam family are going to have to face off against. And they don't. No, uh, Hespera immediately turns them all to, uh, stone statues and then breaks them. So, which is pretty brutal. Absolutely. Now, the real threat to our heroes is the daughters of Atlas. Yes, approaching here into the human realm, but wanting to, uh, they're seeking this staff. The staff is, does it have a name, Brandon, before I go on? Oh, crying out loud. Um, I we know just know the, the wizard's staff was broken at the end of Shazam. And that is a plot point to Shazam Fury of the Gods, because when it when it is reformed, then it allows for magic to continue like i think that that's a loose thread of this story is that within this staff it was broken at the end of the first shazam and now that we're in shazam 2 um with the breaking of that staff billy has now unleashed magic beyond this realm it's kind of that it's more that he has unleashed the potential for magic to like there's the idea that the staff is this conduit this is also a spoiler but it's the idea (laughs) It's the idea that the staff is like the barrier between the god realm and the human realm, and that once it's broken, you know, all hell can break loose, essentially. And so the sisters are seeking it so that, yes, they can acquire their power, but they are actually seeking vengeance for their father. And, you know, this creeped up on me, Brandon. We end up including a note on the apple. The apple is from the tree of life. And so with it, they are able to arise an army to fill their new world. And that's where I felt this movie faltered is because even even here, you listening to me, anyone else listening to me, if it doesn't sound like I'm confident in what I'm talking about, it's because I'm kind of confused. I understand that the sisters have come here um, to avenge their father, but I don't understand whether they have a specific vendetta against like the metahumans of this world, or they are just like hell bent on causing chaos and just, you know, enacting their revenge. Well, that's kind of what I liked about the daughters in contrast to Savannah from the first movie. Like, no disrespect to Mark Strong at all. I think he did a very good job. But this, there's a little bit more to it. There's a really great scene just towards the third act where the three goddesses are basically arguing over whether over whether they should use the apple or, like, what to use the apple on. It's that thing of, like, they may be united in terms of, like, the simple sense of vengeance of the idea of, like, yeah, why does this kid have the powers of our deceased dad? That sucks. But I think it's more than that. I think there's the idea of we need our people and our sense of scale back. And I think it goes to that idea of power that the first movie was kind of putting the thread on that, again, Billy's decisions have ramifications, whether he knows them or not. And then once those consequences of the daughters come into play, I think it becomes this really interesting power struggle that kind of uh, manifests itself 
Speaking of the museum sequence earlier, there's also other set pieces in this movie that I found intriguing that were uh, made of excellent use from the heroes and the family. So we have a whole like bridge rescue sequence. You know, we've seen movies on bridges. You've seen Final Destination. You've seen Fantastic Four. But here, the family is tasked with uh, really evacuating a collapsing bridge. And it's a mark in the film to really introduce one, uh, their cooperation or lack thereof, um, two, their individual personality personalities at the end of shazam we did get the big team up moment but we weren't able to see how each individual kid has like has still retains their identity even in their hero big adult form so we see such things as in megan good's character she is still very much so the young girl that she is in real life when she's not in her hero form or we look over at uh superhero eugene uh played by ross butler who is still very much the brains of the family and who's doing the doing the legwork to figure out okay how can we operate as one so that we aren't just all going billy batson mode and just taking care of you know the the flashiest thing we see or the first he's very impulsive and so i feel like eugene's trying to contrast that and surprisingly freddie is labeled as or self-labeled Mr. Everything, Mr. Every Power. Um, yeah, Mr. Every Power. Mr. Every Power. And he is really like the attention-seeking uh, member of the family that I was surprised to see uh, for his second time around because in that first film, it really was central that Billy and Freddie's relationship was the one that was being built upon. And in the second movie, um, yeah, I mean, before I derail into a Billy and Freddie note, I do just want to make a mark that that bridge sequence was really entertaining. Uh, I did like seeing all the family work together. And then um that's awesome for Grace Caroline Curry, who was able to work with both casts of characters, whether it be the non um Shazam form. And then even when they enter their hero form, that must have been just an exciting shoot for her, an actor like her. Oh, totally. And you mentioned the bridge sequence. And first of all, it's incredibly well choreographed. And like you say, it's a great opening to reestablish everyone's strengths from the first movie. Um, but I also think it's a little bit bold in contrast to the big final action piece that we get, because without spoiling it, it's that final sequence is at night during a lot of like huge lightning storms with like blasts of energy going everywhere. And for one thing, I thought to myself, like, oh, if I was someone like my roommate or one of my good friends who are susceptible to, you know, blinding flashing lights, I wouldn't be able to watch this. And for a movie that is so universal, I felt like that was a little bit of a punch in the gut type thing. But in other words, it's also the thing of the bridge being so well executed and so high stakes at that point and it's in broad daylight like so many scenes try to either take the lighting down or move it to different locations like nope here's the bridge in its entirety and i have to give sandberg a lot of credit for using that sequence in all of its different facets and motions a lot of actions that the hero takes throughout this film they don't you know they're yes they're heroes but they're really bad at their job like we even see they, in the bridge there are, there are vibes of the boys in here yeah, like, or uh, there's vibes of SpongeBob and Patrick. We saved the city <laughs> and it's burning behind them. Or they're like, um, uh, what did they say right before the bridge collapsed, Brent? I- I'm missing it, but. Oh, okay. So, slight, slight spoiler for the end where they do their big hero pose like, all right, guys, time to our time for our main goal to prevent this bridge from falling. And then immediately cuts to a newscast going, the bridge fell earlier. The bridge this has fallen. <laughs> And I found other moments like where Billy, you know, eventually there is an, there is like a, a portion of the city that is secured off from the others. And so Billy's trapped inside there. And so he like unleashes like this lightning bolt at the shield and it only reverts back and hits a building behind him. And he's like, sorry. And it was very, I felt like it meant to be a moment of like the goofiness that came with his hilarious, like save the day nature from the first film. Um, but every now and then when they tried to shoo it into the second movie, I just, I don't know. I couldn't grasp it. And so. 
I wonder, you know, what they wanted to change for Billy's character this time around. They do have a moment between Billy and his older sister, Mary, where the discussion is, you know, Billy, at at a certain point, we all have to grow up. Like, you're trying too hard to hold this family together in a way that's, like, very controlling. And it's not allowing us to grow and have our own space. I guess that that's something that I waited for them to circle back around to. uh, But I didn't feel that 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 was looked into further. Another big player that we haven't mentioned yet is none other than uh, the dragon, the guardian to yes, the... Yes, Layden, I think. Layden is the guardian to the guardian of the gods. I th- Am I saying that right? I think? Yeah, we're going to run with that. And so Layden, they have... Uh, sh- I believe they refer to her as she. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But Layden's... Um, ability is to invoke like fear out of those in front of in front of the dragon and so i found that to be i was waiting for the dragon i knew that the dragon was coming because of the trailers and so i was just like when is this dragon gonna show up and when it finally does it's made of wood it glows blue and i thought it was pretty badass i mean i'm a i'm a fan of um Dragons, oh my gosh, who isn't after you've seen Game of Thrones, House of the, House of the Dragon, whatever. Uh, but here's another iconic one added to uh, a superhero movie. And I thought that they made good use of that. I think that this movie, even with its other like creatures it summons by the end, it isn't afraid to really... It could be brutal, but it knows its rating and it doesn't push it too far. But there's certainly a moment that made me go like, ooh, there are actually several parts that may be kind of like shudder in my seat because uh again this is like a family action superhero but they're still like those hard hits you know i'm speaking of one in particular at the museum do you remember when one of the security guards was chucked into that pillar and you just saw his head dent into the yeah david sandberg brings back the gore not gore from the first movie which i was a big fan of how about the the scorpion tailed of the it looks like a not a sphinx it's called something else oh it's the manticore right manticore exactly and it's it, the way it stabs somebody and just throws him back i'm like okay this movie isn't scared to like it's not pull, it's not pulling its punches the movie oh my gosh there's actually a lot that this movie does with its lore like it introduces another mythical creature that is said to be the one of the most fearful of its realm i won't say the name of it now but how they use that i really admired and i enjoyed Aside from one joke, which has already pissed a lot of people off, I think they use that really well. The rainbow joke? The Skittles thing. What was wrong with the Skittles thing? Everyone says it's like a product placement thing, and it is. I mean, I've seen product placement be bold before, okay? I'm looking at you, Tide Stick, and In the Heights for no damn reason. But no, I actually, they didn't make, make me crave Skittles any more or less. Well, <laughs> neither here nor there. Um Let's talk about the, you know, the tension between the sisters, because at first I did want this to be a movie, not want it to be, but I felt that this was going to be a movie that had um, Calypso and Hespera as the two leaders of this effort that they're trying to push. And then Anthea just following suit with their motivation. But then when you, the staff is repaired, we see that kind of push and pull between Calypso and Hespera for both of their intentions kind of being misguided by their like kind of lust for power. Um, and it, Eventually, how that turns out is one is elevated over the other and she kind of like enacts her rage. And I liked that. I liked the switch up between these villains because they weren't just going to be one way and completely dominating. They could have, but they would have been different characters up until its end. You know, I wanted a little bit more action that didn't involve the dragon, but I was happy with what I got in the final act. I was going to say they do kind of set it up to a point where, okay, you know, 
Billy's going to fight the dragon you've seen in the trailer. But like, what do the other characters do? And they do kind of have to fiddle around with like, what are we going to do with all this? I want to carry over some of the rest of the cast, because uh, again, there's a lot of them. And I think most of them get a pretty good chance to shine. Uh, sadly, the one who I don't think is even that much is Eugene. I think he gets pretty much nothing aside from a few neat lines here and there. Like he and Billy seem to have this really fun gamer bro relationship that isn't really tag- taken anywhere. Um, but I thought Pedro got a really nice subplot in there that really ends like very heartfelt. And I liked it. Uh, Darla is still wonderful in both the Megan Good and Faith Herman incarnations. Uh, and Mary, as you say, is really compelling as the older sister who really just wants to move on with her life. Like she's glad to help. She will obviously be there for her siblings, but like they make a point in the movie of like, she's going out drinking. Like she didn't go to college to help with the family. I felt like her struggles were being put under the rug a little bit and I would have liked to see more, but she's easily the most compelling out of all of them in this movie. That being said, Jack Dylan Glazer is really good in this movie. He's almost taking Billy's arc from the first movie, which is okay, kid with no power and influence suddenly gets power and influence. What does he do? But the way that Freddie handles it, his chemistry with Rachel Zegler, when she does pop up, is wonderful. And they have a really great back and forth uh, between them. It was Freddie who I really felt was kind of the MVP and the emotional focal crux of the movie when Billy and Shazam are kind of stunted as there are big action heroes. Freddie really does feel central to this film's um, emotional arc. While Shazam and Billy, they move to a different part of this story. Um, I'm ready to discuss any potentially spoiler material? Well, first of all, we'll give the main one. Uh, Rachel Zegler is the third goddess, and it's cool. And I'm sure you also saw it the minute that they introduced her. Did you? I mean, I didn't. Maybe not the minute, but like after the bullies came into the picture and like once they get out to the rooftop, I was like, okay, either she is or they're really milking something else that we haven't seen yet. Absolutely. When they were on the rooftop scene, that's when I go, okay, Something else is clearly at play here, but I don't, I did not think that she was related to Hespera and Calypso. I thought that she was a third party. I thought that maybe she was like, um, maybe a connection to Mark Strong's character from the first one, right? With all the sins. Um, but then it ended up that she was the third sister and I wasn't upset about it. I was like, okay, queen, let's go. I wasn't either because again, she plays off Lucy Liu and Helen Mirren really well. And we didn't mention Helen Mirren in this. She is giving her all in this. Like, there is not a moment where I felt like she was completely phoning it in. Like, there's a scene where the Shazam family is sending her basically like a ransom note. Um, And let's just say it's the comedic high point of the movie. I could watch another 10 minutes of her doing that. The casting directors made the right call bringing these two professionals um, into this film and serving as the villain leads. Uh, they don't drop the ball. Everything Calypso says is so snarky and conniving. And I just, I, I was so, again, just happy to see Lucy Liu return to screen. I can't remember when the last time I've seen her was, but yeah, it was a treat. Um, Wonder Woman is in this movie. Gal Gadot is in this movie. What'd you think? Gal Gadot. So at a point of the film where we're looking around and we're realizing, you know, power has been lost. The only way that we can regain it once more is a, like, a spark or a, a strike from a god. And they look around, they're like, well, there are no gods left. And then cue the, I, that Wonder Woman theme is so good. Oh, um, right. 
Bada boom, bada bang, shiny gold and red boots, but it's not Iron Man. It is Wonder Woman. And she appears, hair is flawless. She was probably listening listening around the corner. But also, it, it begs a bigger question. Where the hell was she this whole time? But hey, it's it, we don't ask these types of questions, right? Right, Brandon? So she walks over does what she needs to do. And she kind of dips. There's this funny moment between Shazam and herself, just like Shazam slowly, just desperately trying to plant seeds for any kind of romantic interest. And she's like, clearly not interested. And also you're a kid. Bye. And then she takes off. I will off. say, I love the line. I love the two prog line from earlier where Rachel's like, was like, I'm like 6,000 years old. And then later um, the mom's just like, what is with our sons and older women? Even Wonder Woman's introduction is a joke because earlier in the film, Billy Batson has a dream sequence where he does go on a date with Wonder Woman only for her to turn around. And instead of the face of Gal Gadot, we see the face of equally handsome, equally beautiful <laughs> Jimin Hansu, who is actually the wizard, like intercepting his dream to oh, relay yeah. Spo- a message. Spoiler, the wizard's alive. Nope. Oh my gosh, it's that, it's like, dude, oh my God. I think this movie's also, it's coming so late from the first one, but that's okay. It does, it does a good job of just reminding us and picking us right back up where we left off. When they did the Gemin Hansu thing, I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought it looked pretty good, all things considered. Um, and it was just a funny thing. Like it totally makes sense for Billy at that age, at that time in his life to be like, not just hardcore crushing on Diana, but also the idea of, looking up to her and wondering, you know, making those initial connections again. And then it's this wizard and it's the dream sequence and it's great. The ending part, it's not as egregious as the Superman Black Adam thing, which still to this day boils my blood. From a narrative perspective, I understand how they set it up because they do make a joke early on of like, oh, maybe I could send this to a person. Wink, wink, who is it going to be? And then by the end of it, yeah, she shows up. Yeah, she follows through on that. Oh, look, it's a narrative, but we can tie that all together. But it also felt to me of just like, great, you're trying to tie together a universe that is falling apart at the seams with an actress who you clearly got on set for maybe a few hours to basically, again, rewrite all the stakes in the movie. Like, Billy's back, and, you know, Rachel Zegler has her powers again, and, like, I guess there are gods again now? Like, it just feels like a deus ex machina, just a thing of, like, oh, we can bring in Wonder Woman, let's do that. And what sucks is that they bring up the idea that Wonder Woman and Shazam are intrinsically tied together, and that's such a cool idea. I would love to see that explored. Just not this, which is just lazy. Deus Ex Machina, not even at the last point that you expected it, but even later than that, right? Because I, I yeah. didn't expect the wrap-up of the movie to happen then. Of course, I didn't think that what we saw was going to be the end-all for our characters. But then to have, you know, just kind of Wonder Woman show up, do the thing, and then everything get back to normal, I thought... Uh, boy, when they showed over the grave, I thought they were doing... Are they doing a Batman for Superman again? Oh my gosh. I, I was waiting for for Shazam to wake up and her go, Shazam, this is not you, or, or whatever she says to Kal-El. <laughs> I, I genuinely thought they were going to kill him off because of the idea of like, we don't know if there's going to be a third movie. So I thought that was going to be a thing of maybe he dies and then Mary becomes the matriarch of the family. Like that could be neat. And I've actually heard a theory going forward that this ties into the post credit scene as well. You did watch both, right? No. Never mind. I'm going to stop talking. Brandon, I'm ready to go to ratings. Uh, I think I gave the first movie a nine, and I still stand by that. The first movie is absolutely tremendous and just really fleshed out and wonderful in all the right ways. And this ties a lot of threads together. And I think if you either have watched the first Shazam recently or remember it well enough, there's a lot of really great story threads and uh, character threads that pass on to this. If you like the character of Billy and Freddy and that kind of family dynamic, it is there. The effects, I think, are not significantly better, but there's definitely a step up here. The action is great. The comedy is really well-rounded. 
Um, and the, the emotional core of it, I think, works better often than not. But there are a couple of extra umps that are missing. They definitely rely a bit too much on the older cast. There's definitely a sense of like the daughter's plan is not 100% fleshed out, even though the actual daughters themselves have great kind of back and forth bickering with each other, provide a nice dynamic. Um, Freddie gets to rise to the occasion. A lot of the younger cast really do get to rise to the occasion when they're given the chance to. Um, and again, it's just really fun. Like there's enough in there to like really bring that sort of family friendly adventure superhero excitement that I feel like a lot of movies in the genre are now missing nowadays. Like I applaud Sandberg for trying to make these movies as universal as possible. Like I said, minus a few aspects that I brought up earlier. Again, I really enjoyed this. I acknowledge its flaws. It's not a complete masterpiece by any stretch, but I appreciate the effort. Slightly less nice. And oh my gosh, maybe just family movies aren't for me, Brandon. Maybe I just want raw craziness, um, stakes that matter. Uh, and, you know, I want to have a tissue box just in case I need it by the ending. Not every movie has to be for everyone. We've been over this. Before. Exactly. So uh, this is going to be five and a half out of 10 for me. Um, I still very much enjoyed it, but I think that in review of my experience, I just think that it was a little, it was quite messy. I think that there's a lot going on here. Um, it shines in its moments where we can focus on the mythology that is the background of these daughters of Atlas. Um, that is the wizard's involvement in this, in this world between realms. And then we toss over to the family and we are still understanding, you know, what all of their relationship is to each other and even to their household. You know, how is it that they're, that they're, parents their foster parents are unaware that all of them are superheroes who knows but there is a hilarious joke about lightning being striking just striking the house over and over and over again um it introduces i think some interesting locations even that room that chamber of doors i wanted to know more about i wanted to explore with eugene but it doesn't spend long in its in its locations that i think are the most intriguing um and then for the final act it's kind of reminding me of the end of black adam where we have a lot of our threats for the for our hero awakened and then they're dealt with and laid to rest all within the same like 15 minute mark and then i go ooh, like you know i would like for the threat of this movie to last longer um for me to really worry for my heroes so five and a half out of ten for me like i said the or like brandon says the comedic appeal is there zachary levi i think does do another uh, great rendition of this character and then bringing in more and more of those adult cast members with good dj katrona Adam Brody, who is great as superhero Freddy, Mr. Everything, Mr. Every Power, and then Ross Butler. Um, I thought this cast was really well-rounded, and I don't think anybody really dropped the ball on this one. And Shazam! Fear of the Gods is currently in theaters right now. You should get on HBO Max in just a few months. And that'll do it for episode 46 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for listening once again. While we have you here, why not consider following the show? We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and RSS feed if you just search for Plot Devices. If possible, you can leave us a rating. It does help boost the algorithm to more audiences, helps us grow the popcorn club that we want to cultivate, and that hopefully you guys have gained some enjoyment out of. And if you want to find us more directly, Twitter, Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod, and TikTok, at Plot Devices Podcast. More content coming up there very soon. I want to thank the team for being here today. First off, Leia Zweig is here. Leia, thank you for being our first guest of 2023 on the show. Where can the people find you online? And uh, do you want to plug anything? What are you watching and enjoying nowadays that people might want to uh, know about? Oh, yeah, you can find me basically everywhere. TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, even, I don't know. Um, I guess my ad is Leia44 underscore 1D, and that 1D is for One Direction. Um <laughs> Uh, ooh, enjoying lately. I don't know. I've just been watching a lot of YouTube stuff. I don't know. I've been really enjoying like Smosh, Mythical, stuff like nice. that, you know, just the fun entertainment. 
Did you see uh, the, whatchamacallit, the Shane Imposter Chef video? Oh, uh, yeah, you did. Yeah, that was fantastic. Uh, I love what all those guys are doing. Uh, once again, Noah Guzman is also here. Noah, uh, where can people find you online? What would you like to promote? And uh, what are you enjoying nowadays? Uh, enjoying nowadays all things Pedro Pascal on my screen, okay? We are doing family viewing parties for uh, The Mandalorian Season 3. I'm loving the progression of that show. Uh, we just wrapped The Last of Us. We are hoping to um, record our final comments for that for the plot device coverage coming soon. Um, beyond that, I am kicking back, still listening to SZA, still listening to Omar Apollo. And you can find me on uh, TikTok, Noah, I'm him. Kind of sounds like... Or kind of reads as though Noah him him thinking of interesting new TikTok uh, content to throw out there. Still working on my queer book club, uh, bisexual book club. I got to knock out another chapter and see what kind of stuff I can throw together. So till then, um, talking about movies with you, my friend. And you guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King Forty Five. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King Forty Five. Follow my band at Cablebox underscore Music. That's Cablebox underscore Music on Twitter and Instagram. Our debut single Wish is out on all streaming and audio platforms. If you are so inclined to check it out, more is coming on the way. Uh, and as always, all that information will be in the description at below as well. Go check that out if you are so uh, inclined. But that being said, from episode forty six of Plot Devices, I am Brandon. That is Noah. That is Leia. And we hope to check you guys out next time if you survive.